following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Now it's my honor to introduce to you our speaker for today. Her, her name is Barb, and Barb is a uh, co-pastor at Community of the Savior. And um, I forgot to mention earlier, they, they have a uh, Ash Wednesday service. And so I thought it was funny that I forgot to mention it because she's the pastor there. <laughs> uh, uh, she's also a professor at Empire State College and has been a longtime disability rights advocate. And Taboo provided us with this beautiful prayer this morning. So... Please don't thank me afterward if you really enjoyed the prayer. Please thank Barb for the prayer. <laughs> so uh, please help me uh, welcome her. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, good morning. I have to admit something, and that is I don't usually preach twice, like preach the same sermon and it makes me nervous. I don't know why, because I always, when I preach something, it has to have spoken to me before I, I preach it. And, um, and this did, but to preach it a second time, I'm like nervous. So bear, bear with me. I don't know why. We'll see what happens here. Maybe the Spirit will lead me in different directions as I go. Let's um, listen to the word of God from John. This is from Chapter 14 and verses 15 through 26. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, comforter, helper, counsel, advocate, to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I'm still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be here in ways that we perceive opening our hearts and our minds and our spirits to you, that we might be enveloped by you, drawn into your truth, and live out your graces in our lives each day. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I said the first time that I preached this, do you ever wish that you could eat ice cream again for the very first time? 
Do you ever wish that you had the experience of going back and tasting something that you love for the very first time? I know that I would like to do that. I love ice cream. I have mm, the only flavor I don't like is mint chocolate chip. The, the two should not go together. That, I, I love mint. I love chocolate chip. Put them together, and there's something bizarre about that to me. But most flavors of ice cream I love. I love the coolness, the creaminess. I love the way it slides down the throat. I love the feel of summer or a special occasion. Everything's made better by ice cream. Well, the dilemma for pastors is that this passage and many familiar passages are so known by you that the minute you hear it, you think, oh yeah, giving of the Holy Spirit. I know that one. And so you think of the facts of it, but you don't listen for what it would have been like to be there at that meal with Christ, to hear Christ in his final discourse with his disciples telling them what's going to happen in his promises for them, how they would continue, the comforts that they would have. We don't hear it the way I wish we could hear it. And so I wish I had the, the words and the skills or the, the idea in mind to make you hear it like you've never heard it before. I wish I could make you hear it like it was pre-Golgotha, pre-cross, indefinitely pre-Easter, because for me, at least, when I'm going through Lent and thinking of Christ going up to the cross, I'm thinking, ah, but there's Easter. You know, Easter is coming, and this will be glorified. All of the things that he's suffering now will be kind of eclipsed by the glory that will be his. These disciples did not have that. They didn't have it at all. So listen to what it would be like to be at the last discourse of Christ. I know when my own mother passed away, um, we were all with her in the hospital room, and she was speaking, but she was going in and out of this kind of dream world. But when she would look up and see us all there, and there were a lot of us, there's almost 20 of us when we're together with siblings and um, their wives and husbands and such, my mother looked up and said, oh, you're all here and you've been here for so long. I should get you something to eat. She said, now in the freezer, I have a pot roast that I had leftovers. If I took that out and added it with some vegetables I have in the refrigerator and I have a can of broth, I could make a soup. Let's see, do we have enough seating space? And so she was telling us, she was like, where are we all going to sit? I don't have enough chairs in here. And so her mind was going in and out. And she even, she picked up her blankets and she was quilting on her blankets in the hospital bed. And one of us said to her, are you quilting? And she said, I'm trying to finish up the last two. So her final discourse to us was this, I want to take care of you. And even though much of what she said was nonsensical because of the, the morphine and things of the moment that were affecting her mind, she looked out like, I'm leaving. I need to give you something. That's exactly what Jesus did in this time. He looked and saw, I need to give them something, even as he was going to the cross. Now, 
I don't know how many of you know this about me, but I'm late deafened, which means I grew up hearing and I lost my hearing when I was a young adult. I was actually a vocal performance major in college before I lost my hearing. And um, now that I've lost my hearing, I have a cochlear implant that helps me with some things, but I really depend on good lighting and seeing your face. If your back is turned to me or you're sideways to me, I don't really catch it all. And so a few years ago at Community of the Savior, where I co-pastor, we had a tenebrae service. And I had never been to a tenebrae service. It's a word that means shadows. And it is living out in a service what happened this evening. Everything from the gathering together around the meal to the institution of the Lord's Supper And as the service goes on, it gets darker and darker because the hour of evil, which seems to have that moment in hand, is coming. And so you you actually enter into this darkness. Well, that is a beautiful thing for some people to get that feeling. But for me, it was like, holy cow, the lights went out. What am I going to (laughs) do? You know, because I knew I had a part in the service But I couldn't tell where they were in the service because everything was happening in the dark. And I was on the edge of my seat and I felt like something's happening. What's happening? What am I supposed to be doing? And I was confused and I was a little bit scared. And I imagine that that experience, that tenebrae service that I had that experience in was probably the most like what we're reading here of anything I've ever experienced, because I'm sure that's exactly what these disciples felt like. They're trying to figure out what is he saying, what is he doing. And so I'd like to try to refresh this story in our minds. Just for a moment, don't think about all you know about the doctrinal issues here, but just for a moment, think about sitting at a table with Jesus and thinking about all the things that have happened the week before. There has been this roller coaster ride with Jesus. There have been really high, wonderful moments, and then low, mysterious, hurtful, painful moments. Some of the highs. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. This Jesus that they followed took a dead man who had been put in a grave and the stone rolled in front of it and called him out and he walked out alive. That's a big deal. Jesus was celebrated as he went into Jerusalem by parade and people shouting praises. That was a big deal too because the disciples are like, wow, finally other people are seeing what we've been thinking we see all along. This could be the Messiah. This could be the one to follow. This could be the one that brings political peace to us. And so this messianic hope is renewed in them. Those are some of the highs. But still, Jesus keeps saying these really puzzling, bizarre things, like, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. When he's anointed by a, a woman who comes and anoints his feet and head, he says, she's preparing me for burial. The disciples are listening to this and they're trying to make some congruency or constancy between these like 
Things are going so well. Why is he talking about death right now? So even after this wonderful reception that he had in Jerusalem coming in, which we'll celebrate in Palm Sunday, Christ's mood appears depressed, more troubled than joyous. And his believers had a hard time understanding that. The disciples had come to the supper, the celebration of the Passover, and Jesus had done this, first of all, really bizarre thing by washing their feet. So over in the corner of the room, there is a a bowl of dirty water and an apron and a towel where he's washed their feet, and he's washed away the remnants of the sand and dust on their feet where they've walked with him. It's different. And then... He's speaking of betrayal, and he's speaking of denial, and people falling away, and one is already left in the night. Judas has already left the room and walked out. But he's not talking about those things from outside. He's talking about it like around this table. This is some of the the things that I'll suffer. And he speaks of leaving, and that's troubling when a leader leaves. I hope you're not missing Scott this morning. He deserves a break. But typically, it's troubling when a leader leaves because you don't know if they're coming back. I think Scott's coming back, so you have it on my word. <laughs> okay. He speaks of leaving. Where is he going? Can they follow? No. And even the answers that he gives to them seem to be in such riddles that he doesn't even know, or that they don't know what he's trying to say to them. And that's the picture of a fragile community that's worried about the future, that sees their leader so troubled that they don't know maybe if he's even emotionally stable or not. There's fear and there's confusion and just general bewilderment all around that table. And Jesus, who would soon be facing the greatest ordeal that has ever been known by a human, ever experienced, looks around the table and sees their fear and offers them comfort and words of encouragement and hope and love. The song... If ever I loved you, Lord Jesus, tis now comes to my mind because this is one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus' compassion to me. Jesus looks out on crowds and has compassion and sees people with specific needs and goes to them. But here, around this table, when they should be comforting him, and he shouldn't have to be speaking of denial and betrayal, He takes all of that to himself and he pours out to them the comfort that this moment needs. That's a beautiful Savior. He speaks hope into their fragile place and peace into their fear. He brings them comfort and that's why he is the first comforter. In a minute, we'll talk again, but did you notice when I read it says, the Father will send you another comforter? Well, Jesus has been the first comfort to them. And so he proceeds to offer them 
grace and hope for this moment. Chapter 14 starts out with, don't let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. Yes, I'm going, but it's for your benefit. And I will come again that where I am, you also will be. This separation is not forever. And even further, he encourages them, while I'm away in the flesh, there's a succession plan here that's even better than having me here with you. And that plan is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we come to to today's passage now. You know, this was puzzling to them because they didn't understand the Trinity. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We sometimes sing songs to Jesus, about Jesus or to Jesus, sometimes to the Holy Spirit, sometimes to God the Father. But this was new to them. They didn't have centuries of ecumenical councils and theologians trying to sort it all out. And so talking about another comforter was kind of unusual to them. In children's sermons, we often have, you know, water is uh, steam, and water can be liquid, or water can be ice, or we have the egg with the shell and the yolk and the, the white. Those are bad. I mean, those are, <laughs> those are childhood attempts of explaining the mystery of God, that which we can never explain in human terms, but it's something. They didn't even have egg, you know? So... They were at a loss to understand what all this meant. In his explanation that I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, and you're in me, and and things that just seemed like rambling to them. The Spirit abides with you, and he will be in you. What does that mean? And I was talking to James before the service um, about, you know, the last service and, and the sermon there, and he said, Sometimes I think the Holy Spirit is just a concept for people. Yeah, I think so too. But I can see myself trying to follow this circular interconnectedness that Jesus is trying to explain, and I know me, and I would have said, is there a diagram we could refer to? Or a PowerPoint, something? Please, Jesus, please. But even better than any kind of a picture of what this is, There's a word that is key to this whole arrangement, and that word is relationship. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit desired to be in such constant and close communion with those disciples and still desires to be in that close of a communion with us today that the Holy Spirit is given to us to indwell us. It's not a concept. It actually is God in our lives, in us. We could never imagine a more incredible gift than God actually taking up residence in us individually and in us communally. I, um, I said before, and I'll say it again, this should affect every part of what we do. It should affect our relationships. It should affect the way we work, whether your work is secular or in the church. It should affect every single thing you do, down to the way you drive. And I kind of said that before as a joke, but I really mean it. It should impact every single thing we do. 
because this wonderful succession plan speaks of communion that is beyond description. Communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It also speaks of a commission. Not only is it a relationship, but it is a relationship that will act and pour out love, that will continue the work of Christ. Just as Christ did, we fellowship with the members, the persons of the Trinity. And just as Christ did, we live out that blessed communion in faithful obedience to the will of God. When you hear this passage, many people hear it, this first part, as saying this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then I will ask the Father and he'll send you another, another advocate. If I do this, then God will do that. And you hear it as a condition, like maybe I'm not doing enough or maybe I'm not good enough to receive the Holy Spirit. But when you look at the original Greek, it is not an if and then. It's a then and because. It means it's a relationship. It's indicative. So if you love someone, you're going to try to please them. And because of that, God is pleased. So it is not, Jesus isn't taking this moment to say, and you better watch out around this table where they're already scared. Jesus is taking this moment to say, you've loved God, continue loving God, and this is what the Father will do for you. It follows that if you love someone, you seek to please them. If you care about someone, you care for their welfare, and you want them to know that you love them. And so this is an obedience that's spurred on by love, and it's energized by love, and it's empowered by love. And it couldn't happen any other way except by love. And what are the commandments that we are supposed to keep? Well, in most of the Gospels, there are a long list of commandments, all kinds of things, you know, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, um, you know, be careful what you teach, and give to Caesar what is Caesar's and things. Do you know how many commandments there are in the book of John? Two. You can refer back to chapter 13, 34, and 35. The two commandments are love God and love others. Two commandments. The command to love by being caught up into this wild sweep of the communion between God in the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At my house, I have a little dog who is, let's see, he'll be eight years old in June. His birthday is June 7th. He is named Wesley, of course, because I'm a free Methodist pastor, so what else? But <laughs> he's a Vishla, and I don't know if you know much about Vishla. First, Vishlas, are, they have this fascinating history because the Hungarian king bred a dog from Germany, a short-haired pointer, with a yellow dog from Turkey and made a Vishla. They're this beautiful, rich, kind of golden, reddish color and they were Hungarian. He gave them to his friends. They were a hunting dog. 
they were not allowed out of the country and nobody had a visa except if you were wealthy and in good standing with the king. So when the Russians came in between the wars to that, between the world wars in that area, anybody who had a visa was known to be high up in government or military. So they were slaughtered and they were started to um, be taken out of the country at that time. Until that time, there were no visas in the rest of the world. We're glad they have visas in the rest of the world because visas are Velcro breed dogs, they call them. They want to be right next to you. They don't, you move, they move, like literally. They follow you around like they're stuck to you. My husband and I, if we hug, that little Wesley comes right between our legs. He doesn't ask for anything. He just leans. He leans first on Warren, and then he leans on me, and then he just leans back and forth. He just likes to be held in that circle of love. And that is what living in and through the Holy Spirit is really about. It's being swept up into this communion that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this Trinity is not just communicating and enjoying fellowship with one another, though they are. It's a perfect community. It's our model of community. But that, it's opened up, and they want us to be pulled into that as well. It's a safe place. It's a space to grow. It's a space to know that you were loved in such a way that you don't need the applause of people to feel loved. Um, Max Licato wrote this book for children that I recommend to you if you have a little one at your house called You're Special. And in that, there's a woodcarver who carves all of this vast array of people. Some are talented, some are everyday, some are not so talented, some have big chins, big noses, big foreheads, whatever. And everybody is given a box of stars and a box of dots. And the talented people, those that do special things, are given stars and they stick them to them. And so if you see someone doing special, you stick a star on them. If you see someone who's clumsy or not too bright or who does something laughable and other people are, you know, like, look at that. Then you stick just a dot on them. And then people can see, ah, they're pretty special. They're just ordinary, not so great. And in that story, he says, he goes to the wood carver, and he learns that the power is in if you believe the things that are said about you, and if you don't believe in the stars, don't stick to you, and neither do the bad things. And so he says, the woodcarver says to him, come to see me every day. You're special because I made you. You don't need what other people say. And as I read the lives of people who faithfully lived the Christian life, I see so often that there are people that were unimpressed by praise or compliments and people that were also not deterred by any kind of negative criticism, but they just knew, I'm living in that space where God is and I'm invited in. Like Wesley, leaning and just enjoying being there. The key verse for me is verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. 
God has made provision for us to enjoy and dwell in and feel what it's like to be part of a family, to be surrounded by care and love and help and comfort and counsel and fellowship by being invited into that Trinity's fellowship. As someone who's lived a while, and that's me, I'm old, I'm getting older, which is a good thing. You either get older or, you know, you don't get older. It's good to get older, okay. (laughs) But I'm also a professor um, who teaches in human services the needs of humanity. I'm also a pastor, a professional social worker, and a person who's worked with people with disabilities. And I found, and I truly believe this, that most of the difficulties in life are made, or at least made worse, by that tendency for us to think that we're orphans. That the way we live our lives does not really matter to anyone. When we're living for self-interest instead of God. When we spend so much of our energy protecting ourselves, rather than living in this authentic freedom that the stars and the dots are not sticking to me. But God loves me and has invited me into that fellowship. When people live lives protecting their scarcity of resources instead of entering into the abundance of God and just with abandon, letting that go and knowing that you will be provided for. We have family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have family with one another too, brothers and sisters in Christ. And God has this ever-enfolding and enlarging picture of the gospel, okay? Starting in the Old Testament, you know that God visited people with dreams or with angels sent or wrestled with them. You have those pictures in the Old Testament that God visited people for a specific purpose or time. Then you go into the New Testament and you see the incarnate God here among us, Christ sent to live on earth, knowing what it is to be fully human, enfolding in what it means to be God among us, Emmanuel. And then the enfolding doesn't stop there, and the enlarging doesn't stop. The next step, and Jesus is trying to get this across to them here, is that the Holy Spirit is going to be in all of you. You are going to be the incarnation of God in this world, the continued incarnation. Jesus stood before crowds. He stood before people. He had conversations with people one-on-one or a group or even a multitude, but still limited in time and space. But the church of Christ, the Holy Spirit in all of us moving out, means that that Holy Spirit is where you work where you go to the gym, where you live in the neighbors around you, whatever spaces that you have in your life, the Holy Spirit is in that place. You're part of the incarnation of God that continues. It's enfleshed in us. And the work of God, the work of Christ, continues in us. So the church is a community of witness, of love, of God's continued activity in the world. The world no longer visibly sees Jesus. 
but they see us. And we have the opportunity, the privilege, the command to let them see love. Love of God and love for one another through the Spirit's prompting. God is not an archaic belief, as some people would think. But God is living and moving and redeeming in his presence, in his church, in his world. How are our lives noticeably different? How are our lives inviting and attractive because God dwells in us? May the Holy Spirit lead us into all truth and remind us all that Jesus has said to us. May the Holy Spirit bring revival to our souls and to our faith communities. You know where revival starts? Um, I've had some experience with seeing small revivals or reading history of greater revivals. But revivals start with repentance. We're moving into Lent. This is a perfect season to think, where does revival begin? It begins in my heart. If you have anything against anyone... Not only something that you've said aloud to them, but just in your heart, an unforgiveness, a jealousy, something that is keeping you from loving others completely, then repent of that and ask that person for forgiveness. That's where revivals start. Um, The story of Houghton's revival, Our Land Was Healed, I went to college in Houghton, was just this beautiful story of even when they had chapel services, the chapel services were like out of control. People stopped listening to the pastor or the preacher of the day and was like, this is between me and my brother. This is between me and my sister. And the revival happened because of love for God fleshed out in love for one another. Repentance is full and humble when the Holy Spirit brings it, and it's not something that we try to make of our own making. Respect for all persons happens. And love, the commandment upon which all of these other things hinge, happens. Jesus said this, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We will know the presence of the Holy Spirit and what that means to us, to our faith communities, to the world around us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be with us all. Thank you, Barb. And it's true, I often do see the Holy Spirit as as just a concept. And I was thinking that in the communion table, uh, there's, uh, well, there's really no better antidote for that. It's a a very physical reminder of a spiritual reality um, that I am, uh, that in the communion table, we are connected to each other across generation and culture. Um, And in the communion table, we are connected to Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Trinity. So let's celebrate that together. At Artisan, we have an open table. If you're seeking to follow Christ, this table is for you. And we practice by intinction, which is simply just dipping the bread in the, the wine or the juice, whichever is appropriate for you or your family.
and let's celebrate the, uh, the table of the Lord together. Also, there will be prayer available in the uh, back of the sanctuary. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.